3: It's good to see you again, my friend. Welcome into another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I am Clint Davis. I talk about movies and television here on the show from my closet just outside of beautiful Columbus, Ohio. And in just a little bit, we'll be hearing from my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, who talks about streaming music here on this show where we, you guessed it, look into all the entertainment that's out there streaming every single month, at least the the big streaming services especially and this month i'll be talking heavily about uh, a big show on hbo max euphoria i'll be talking about a couple movies that are in the running for best picture at the oscars uh, which are just weeks away as i'm recording this Um, and uh, they are both going to be hitting streaming in just uh, well a matter of days now again as i'm uh, recording this so by the time you hear it They should be uh, available for you to check out yourself. If you have those services, I'll also be giving you, as always, some recommendations streaming on Netflix, on Prime Video, and on Hulu, and on, well, HBO Max as well. And we got plenty more coming up in the Stream Police podcast. Our 99th edition of the show. I don't know if we're going to do anything uh, special. seems like we should for episode 100. Um, Maybe Andy and I should... Do another long lost live program together via Zoom or something like that, um, and we can uh, maybe figure it out. But uh, we'll we'll I guess you'll find out next month here on the Stream Police. For now, you got us the old fashioned way. I urge you to uh, check me out on uh, Instagram and on TikTok. I am at Mr. Clint Davis. Andy is on Instagram at Andy Sedlak. Last name is spelled S-E-D-L-A-K. No C in that one. And uh, you can find me also on YouTube at Overdue Review. And, uh, man, since the last time we spoke, you know, I mean, we've already been going through a pandemic for the last several years. And I still haven't been to a movie theater since Parasite was out. But now, on top of that, Europe has seen war return uh, to its borders and uh i tell you man europe needs a war like uh, we all need a hole in our collective head just because of everything else that's been going wouldn't it be nice to just like not have something historic happening just for once just one thing to just be like easy boring very boring like nothing exciting happening no firsts happening you know i mean that's just just let things be boring for a little while is all i say and if you if you need a refresher though on why, and I'm not going to sit here and talk about the the war and the Russian invasion and all that for a long time, but I did want to mention in league with this show and talking about movies and talking about television, if you need a refresher on why violent invasions are best left in the history books and something that just feels like something out of ancient history, doesn't it, invading other countries? It just sounds like such a, it's, it sounds so old-fashioned, right? It's 2022, like the things we have going on, uh, and there are still countries invading each other for... Just, anyway, track down a copy of Come and See from the mid-1980s. Uh, I just revisited it recently, and I tell you, that is maybe the hardest to watch of all the the war movies, of all the anti-war movies, certainly, um, because there are no heroics in this. It's the classic thing of... If you've never seen this movie again, it's called "Come and See." It's uh, it it follows this kid who has, you know, grown up hearing the the glories of defending your homeland, and so he decides to enlist at a young age because they're taking anybody they can get. He finds a gun uh, that he digs out of the ground from an old battle site, takes it with him, and uh, gets into the military, and well. He finds out that there really aren't uh, many heroics happening on the battlefield after all. It is just frightening and uh, and disheartening and horrifying. And the, the movie, of course, such a grueling film, Come and See, was that the director, the guy who made it, actually never made another movie after he was done making that one. He just didn't. He said he couldn't make any more movies like he is creatively done. That was it. Um, and guess what country Come and See came from? The Soviet Union, go figure. The greatest, I don't know about the greatest, but the most hard-hitting anti-war movie, most explicit anti-war message movie I've ever seen, and it comes from the Soviet Union in the mid 1980s. So maybe they need to go back and look in their own uh, their own uh, vault of films there in Russia and see the lessons that, uh, that they're missing out on. So anyway, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, I'm going to skip my stogie. Usually this would be the time where I light up here in my closet in Columbus, but my throat's hurting a little bit. My son has just come off of being sick over the last couple of days, not COVID. Thankfully we tested him a couple times and he was all good for that, but just, uh, you know, throat's getting sore and the whole house smells like Vicks VapoRub. So I don't know if, if that stuff like gives off flammable gas in the air or anything, but I'm afraid if I light my Zippo, the whole thing's going to go up and you're going to hear my death recorded live uh, right here on the podcast. So that might be good for ratings, but not uh, very good for me. So I'm going to skip the Stogie this month. We'll get back to it next month, hopefully. Um, I also got some literal fan mail this month, not an email, mail in my mailbox which I will get to in a second. That is a first for me. I've been podcasting a long time, uh, since about 06, and I've, I don't think I've ever gotten a piece of mail in my life uh, that actually came with a stamp on it. So I'm going to talk about that here in just a moment. But first, let me get the show started in in the, the stylish way that we always like to, which is by unveiling our latest and greatest pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time, This week, our 72nd edition into uh, into the canon of greatest TV show theme songs ever. There are some TV theme songs that it is honestly it's mind blowing. Like I said, this is we've I've done this 71 times previously. That's a lot of TV theme songs that I've talked about in this segment, and it is mind blowing that we have not featured Some songs that I look at through history, I'm like, man, I haven't done that one, and I keep this big sheet of all the ones I've done. So no, have not done this song. This is definitely one of those that I think it's incredible that I waited this long to talk about. It's probably got more words in it than any other theme song I can think of, but I'll bet a beer that you know every single one of those words. So let's find out together. We're going to go back to September 1990 when NBC did its part to help make hip-hop the mainstream art form it is today by unleashing this masterpiece on primetime American television.
0: Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel-Air.
3: The theme song from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which actually has a different title. Did you know this song has a real title? The song is called Yo Home to Bel-Air, which I did not know. It is more commonly known as the theme song from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but it is called Yo Home to Bel-Air. I definitely never knew that. I always learn something when I'm researching this segment. I hope you do, too, when I I spew these facts at you. The track was written and performed by that dynamic duo of feel-good 80s and 90s hip-hop DJ Jazzy Jeff and The Fresh Prince, a.k.a. Jeffrey Towns and Will Smith the story behind the song's creation shows just how much balls these two guys had at that particular point in their lives. So here's the story. When Fresh Prince was about to air in 1990, in the late 80s, right 89, 1990, somewhere around there, Quincy Jones... Was the guy who was tapped to do all the music for the series? I mean, you got this big network television, um, basically an all-black cast fronting this show. Um, you know, taking a chance on a guy who's an unknown as far as acting goes, uh, who is known as a as a rapper. But at that point, rap's not really that mainstream, and um, certainly nowhere near as popular with people who were watching primetime TV all the time, like families and, you know, white people and stuff like that, as it is today. So this was a big chance by NBC. So they hire Quincy Jones, though, to do the music for the series, and he's about as sure thing, as big of a sure thing as you can get, especially in the late 1980s. I mean, this is the guy who did Thriller, right? I mean, the biggest album of all time, still to this day the biggest album of all time. Quincy Jones is the guy that did that record. So the guy spun gold, and we've talked about his prowess as a TV theme song writer before because he did the theme for Sanford and Son, which I talked about not long ago in a segment on this. So anyway, Quincy Jones is hired to do all the music for the show. He composes a bunch of music that's going to go on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So Jazz and Will hear the track that Quincy is going to use for the opening of the show and decide to try, hey, Quincy, do you mind if we maybe try to do our own theme song? It's cool what you did and everything. I mean, I know you you got you wrote Thriller, uh, but let me. We're gonna go ahead and DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince are gonna go ahead and try to do this on our on our own. The theme song here. So Quincy gives him the okay. Says, "All right, go ahead and give it a shot." They apparently write and produce this song in pretty quick order. Play it back for Quincy Jones, and he loves it and says it should definitely replace his own theme song and open up the show. Once again, he was one hundred percent right. But again, the ball's on these two young guys to talk to the all time music legend, certainly at that point in pop music, and say, Yeah, I think we're going to try it ourselves. Now, the the show still did use some of Quincy Jones's music, um, you know, setting scenes and stuff like that, but the opening was replaced by their own track.
0: In West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where I spend most of my days. Out, maxing, relaxing, all cool and all,
3: like so many great and awful theme songs actually of this era. The theme song for the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is one of those that breaks down the whole story of the show into a quick tune that can get new viewers up to speed in a hurry. You know, I'm a big fan of that. I just think it's such a—it's cheesy but great, and it's smart, and it just really can go a long way in getting you settled into a show that you've never seen before. It takes all the intimidation away from sitting down with a show you've never seen because you instantly kind of know where things stand right out of the start. And this is the classic fish-out-of-water story if you've never seen The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which, honestly, I don't know how that would be possible— but still, I'll tell you what the show's about. It's about a kid, played by Will Smith, named Will Smith, raised in the tough streets of Philadelphia. He gets shipped off to his rich aunt and uncle's house. It's a mansion, actually, in Los Angeles, in the Bel Air neighborhood, and uh, it's it's a huge culture culture shock uh, from where this guy's coming from to where he ends up, and of course, he has a tough time fitting in, but uh, the show explores it for several seasons and, and does so uh, really well, and... The show really establishes Will Smith as the actor that we know him as today, multi-academy award nominated actor. He's, uh, he's nominated again this year, uh, in fact. Unlike many of those other theme songs, though, that try to explain the show, the Fresh Prince theme comes directly from the main actor, main character, and it lets you know what kind of kid he is. And it immediately makes you like Will Smith. I defy you if you've never seen the opening visuals of, to the, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme. If you've never watched the video that, that went along with it at the beginning of the episode, watch that and, do, and don't smile. Try not to smile. Try not to not like Will Smith. Or try not to like Will Smith, I should say. Um, because I, I don't see how it's possible. The guy's just charisma comes off the screen, jumps off of your TV, and he immediately you're like, okay, I like this guy. In fact, I might love this guy. And he makes rapping sound so easy in this song. I mean, and it is not an easy thing. You should obviously know, but he makes it sound like a cinch here.
0: I whistled for a cab and when it came near, the license plate said fresh and hit dice in the mirror. If anything, I could say that this cab was rare, but I thought, man, forget it. Yo, home to Bel Air.
3: Yo, home to Bel Air would actually see an extended three minute mix released as a single in 1992, only in Europe. Uh, The song was released in in the United States as well, like on uh, Greatest Hits compilations from DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. But it was only put out as a single in Europe and it was a top five track in Spain and the Netherlands. So if you can imagine the Netherlands in 1992, people bumping this song. Uh, While they drive around, uh, that's (laughs) that's exactly what was happening, apparently. And uh, it's now a signature part of the career of DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, which was no joke in itself. I mean, these guys were not like they didn't just have this show and that was it. I mean, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, you look them up. That is a good Greatest Hits compilation collection. I mean, they were Jazzy Jeff was a legitimate producer, great beat maker in his day. Um, I mean, he makes the song sound so smooth and just an expert sampler and all that kind of stuff. And uh, Will Smith, I mean, he just had something, again, so likable about him and was an answer kind of to really harder rap that was coming out in the early 90s. And he was one of those party rappers like A Kid in Play, um, The Fat Boys or Biz Marquee. I mean, they were kind of one of those in that kind of line of rapper. And uh, I think it's... Safe to call this song uh, one of the most popular and beloved hip-hop songs ever recorded. I mean, seriously, no qualification. I think it's one of the most popular, most well-known, most well... uh, Everyone knows the lyrics. Everyone remembers it fondly. And that's in the history of hip-hop. I think it's right up there with any of them. And that alone gets it a spot as the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week.
0: I pulled up to the house about seven or eight And I yelled to the cabbie Yo, home, smell you later Looked in my kingdom I was finally there To sit
3: on my throne As the Prince of Bel-Air Talking about Will Smith, a.k.a. the Fresh Prince And his good friend DJ Jazzy Jeff With their song Yo, Home to Bel-Air From the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air Man, what a what an iconic early 1990s sitcom so thank you nbc for that one and i said that uh, i got some real fan mail since the last time we spoke and it is directly related to the greatest tv show theme songs ever and that is uh one of our listeners kathy she sent me a copy of a feature that entertainment weekly did like she said i've got five sheets of magazine print here um a feature that that uh, EW did on the best TV theme songs of the 21st century. So she sent that to me, and I got to say, there's some pretty good ones on here. There's several that we have done, and also some that we have not done. They have at number one. They've got, and remember, these are uh, of the 21st century, so since the year 2000. Uh, Crazy Ex Girlfriend. They have as, at number one, and we have not done that one on this show. So maybe a big oversight. We'll have to check that out but some of the ones that we have done that are on this list uh let me see here uh i do not have um okay i haven't done any of those yet i'm looking through here we got like csi stranger things um a couple of these are on the short list weeds uh the wire of course we actually have not done the wire uh, the OC. We've done Game of Thrones. Um, I We've done Gilmore Girls. Those are those are on their list. I can't be, can't remember if we've done The Office. I'd have to look at my list real quick. I feel like that's one we did do. Um, we've done True Blood. That was the very first one we ever did. We've done Curb Your Enthusiasm. We've done Mad Men. Um, so there you go. There's a, a, some good ones on here. They've also got some newer shows like WandaVision uh, is on here as well. That's still a show that I'm waiting to finally get into. I'll hopefully talk about that uh, one of these days coming up real soon. But, yeah, that was a trip to open the the mail and actually get something uh, related to the Stream Police podcast in the mail. So thank you, Kathy, and uh, thank you, Entertainment Weekly, for spotlighting TV theme songs and obviously having some of the best. I think it's an oversight to not have the leftovers, on that list. Uh, The Americans had a really good one as well. That one, that could have possibly been in your top 25, but there've been some really good, I would have had BoJack Horseman in there as well, which we have honored on this segment also. But anyway, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was not since the year 2000. So wouldn't have made the list, but if you're going all time, it's gotta be right up there. So thank you again, Kathy for sending me the mail. I'm not going to give anyone my mailing address here. Uh, She does have an N in that respect, But uh, you can always write me at theclintdavis at gmail.com if you want to send me mail that way, theclintdavis at gmail.com. All right, let's talk about a TV show that has no opening theme song of any kind. It's one of those shows that changes the the song, the the way that it opens every single week, Um, and they just do a plain title over black most weeks, and I am talking about hbo's runaway hit series over the last uh, year or so euphoria which has two seasons now streaming on hbo max two seasons and a couple special episodes which acted as kind of a middle um a bridge between those two seasons during the pandemic when uh you know this show kind of had its first season air then the pandemic hit and screwed everything up in the world of television and film production so they they did these two special hour-long episodes um, in between to kind of tide people over that were really unique. And then the second season got underway just this year, uh, in 2022 and is, um, wrapping up actually tonight as I'm recording this. So two seasons now streaming for you on HBO max of euphoria and this show you, you've probably read about it, heard about it, uh, because it has been kind of a, a big buzz show, Um, Certainly while this season has been airing, I think the first season came out and went under a lot of people's radars for some reason uh, until the Emmys hit and Zendaya, who's the star of the show, uh, and you might know her from her career as a musician or her performances in the Spider-Man movies, the 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 current Spider-Man movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man movies. Uh, she plays uh, MJ in those and does a really good job. But this show is like, this is her star turn. She's the lead in this show, but it, it's a true ensemble program. This isn't like the Zendaya show, but she really does do a lot of heavy lifting and shows herself as a legitimate dramatic uh, actor who can who can really do it all. She, she wears so many hats on this show. Um, And I have just been so impressed with Zendaya while watching Euphoria that uh, I just I I tweeted jokingly that I just think every year she needs to win an Oscar and an Emmy uh, because why not? Because she's just that good. I think she's so good. And again, like I was saying with Will Smith talking about the Fresh Prince, she is such a, I think, likable celebrity. And her talent just is like worn on her sleeve, but she doesn't seem like an asshole. Like, she honestly seems like somebody you could talk to. And I think that's what you think about Will Smith, too. Um, And we've gotten to know a little bit more about Will Smith over the years. And I think maybe you feel like maybe he's a little bit more of a weirdo than you really thought he was. but uh, Zendaya is one of those kind of, you know, very charismatic, very likable. And in Euphoria, she has to play a part that has her be very unlikable at times, but also very charming um, as well. So anyway, before I, I get too into praising everybody involved in this show, let me tell you what Euphoria is about. If you haven't seen it, it is the, you know, prototypical high school teen drama uh set in a high school they don't tell you what state it's in but it seems like it's in california the license plates don't have a state written on them but you see palm trees and stuff like that it doesn't really matter what state it is generic little town Um, it's a you know just generic classic little high school uh but these kids are uh, the as the opening tells you and the opening like first five ten minutes of euphoria i think are so Effective. I was immediately like, "I'm going to love this show" because I went into it kind of not knowing. Because teen dramas, you know what I mean, hit very hit or miss. The acting usually is subpar. At best the writing is usually um, well-worn crap that you've seen done a thousand times. Um, it usually always pulls up short at being really transcendent, groundbreaking, um, really dangerous. Uh, It's things that kind of like, well, that would, you know, feel dangerous to someone in a suburban high school, but really in the real world, not be very dangerous. But Euphoria shatters all of that. Euphoria has phenomenal acting. Euphoria does have writing that I think tackles some of the same storylines we've seen done a hundred times. And this show definitely veers into the overdramatic at times. Definitely. It is soapy as hell. Sometimes the storylines just keep you it's got kind of some of that Shonda Rhimes thing where like you you keep watching partly because you have no clue where the writer is going to take this show next where it's going to where these characters are going to go like anything is possible because it just seems like such a wild ride that you're in for and that's one of the things that makes Euphoria so compellingly watchable but it is. It is well-written in that the character motivations make sense, the characters are interesting, um, but also the show's got great music, it's got cinematography that reminds you of artistic, edgy, um, fresh cinema, really. I mean, it doesn't look like a TV show, and it doesn't look like movies, necessarily. Um, It looks like something very... Like hot, and it looks like something really dangerous, and that's what's kind of the vibe of the show the whole way through. There is something dangerous happening in Euphoria when you're watching it, and and like I said, the first ten minutes are very arresting. I think if you watch the first ten minutes of Euphoria and you find yourself drawn in, which I don't know how you couldn't be by that opening, um, then you will be in for the ride. Because uh, it's just a show that flies by, and it's one that you can binge really easily. It's addictive, a very addictive show, which is interesting because the show is so much about addiction. But anyway, it follows these high school kids, and Rue is the main character. She's played by Zendaya, and as it as she tells you in her intro to meeting this character, she was born a couple days after nine eleven. So you got the shot of her parents in a uh, hospital room watching the the smoke clear and people at ground zero and bush down there with his mega horn while their baby girl is stream, screaming and coming into the world so this is the world she came into
0: i was born three days after 9-11 i can hear you i can hear you the rest of the world hears you and the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all My mother and father spent two days in the hospital, holding me under the soft glow of the television, watching those towers fall over and over again, until the feelings of grief gave way to numbness. And then, without warning, a middle-class childhood in an American suburb.
3: This is very much a Gen Z... Like, this is like the Gen Z drama. But it's funny because this show was not at all written by a member of Gen Z. This was written by a guy who is you know, like 40 years old, firmly a millennial, like an older millennial born in the 80s. And I'm talking about Sam Levinson. Sam Levinson is the writer, director, creator of Euphoria. And he's one of those, uh, you know, kind of showrunners that is so obsessive that he writes basically every single episode. He's like the only person that's written any episodes of Euphoria. So it kind of begins and ends with him uh, in the writer's room. And if, you, if that name sounds familiar, Sam Levinson, it's because you know his father, Barry Levinson. He was um, the guy that did, I mean, you name it. I mean, Barry Levinson did it. The Natural, Rain Man, Wag the Dog. I mean, brilliant movies. Diner. Um, you know, Barry Levinson just is one of those really tremendously uh, great American filmmaking voices. And so he passes these genes down to Sam Levinson in this work ethic Because you can't do a show like this where you're in charge of writing everything, coming up with everything, and you're not a a crazy workaholic. Um, But I have to say, man, the characters from Barry Levinson's Diner would be aghast if they stepped into the high school in Sam Levinson's Euphoria for just a moment. They would not know what—like, they would (laughs) stick out like sore thumbs. Um, They would be so square. They'd be like, in the teacher's lounge and not— uh, with these kids, because this is a this is a rough school to be at, and it's not like it's a rough school because it's a suburban school. It's a middle class, upper class kind of area. Everybody lives in like these pretty nice houses, but everybody is on drugs. You know, everybody's having sex. Everyone's exploring identity constantly. Everyone's got psychological issues that go back to their childhood, and we just kind of get into them one character by one. As with kind of each episode of Euphoria at the beginning, we get into the backstory of another one of the characters. And this is a true, like I said, ensemble piece. And I think that's what I love about this because I am nuts for ensemble pieces. And Euphoria stars Zendaya right at the top. Hunter Schaefer plays Jules, who is Zendaya's girlfriend. Um, and and Hunter Schaefer and Jules, the character, uh, both are trans girls. And it's. really lends a a big air of authenticity to this role to the stuff that this character goes through but this is not a story like you've got a trans main character here but this isn't isn't like transparent where first off we had a cis guy playing a, a trans woman this is a legitimate trans woman playing a trans girl but this this character is so like sure of herself and confident in this that this isn't about like oh I'm just starting to transition and this is the story about why I'm transitioning that's not even part of really like you could go the first five episodes of the series and not even realize that Jules is trans until it's mentioned I mean it's just not a thing that is really a a big deal as far as this character goes um, at least on the surface it just doesn't really it doesn't matter uh, on the surface so Anyway, Hunter Schaefer is phenomenal in this show, and I'm sure that you've heard her name thrown around a lot uh, by people because she's really become a very buzzy celebrity, uh, just just like Zendaya uh, since the show started. And uh, Sydney Sweeney is another one that you might have heard about since the show came out. She's very good. She plays uh, Cassie, who's kind of a love addict. Uh, basically very unhealthy person, like pretty much everybody in this show is unhealthy in different ways. Alexa Demi is very good in this show, one of my favorites. She plays Maddie, who's kind of like the bitchiest, you know, most – I don't want to say like most popular girl at school because you don't really get that sense. The clicks are pretty tight here, Um, and I can't imagine a lot of people really liking Maddie because she is so abrasive. But uh, a lot of people might want to be her. You know, I mean, she's the classic cheerleader dating, like, the hottest guy at school and all that kind of shit. And um, Angus Cloud is very good in this show. He plays the drug dealer that Zendaya goes to, but he's more like an older brother to her. Maud Apatow, who is the uh, daughter of Judd Apatow and Leslie Bibb. And uh, you might remember her being a really young girl in some of the uh, Apatow movies and um, it's really stealing a lot of scenes. But she's grown up now. And she plays a character named Lexi, who's uh, more of a kind of creative introvert, kind of a nerd, doesn't necessarily fit in. And uh, she goes back really far with Zendaya's character, Rue. Uh, but they've kind of gone in different directions as Zendaya has gotten heavily into drugs um, and uh, Lexi's kind of character that just doesn't doesn't do that kind of stuff. So um and even McSteamy himself, Eric Dane, who I was surprised to see in this cast, uh, he plays the father of one of the characters, and he actually ends up being a pretty big character himself and does a really good turn in this show, like, reaches depths that I would have never guessed he could reach from being on a hospital show on NBC um, that was kind of more about flirtation and stuff like that than it was about real acting, I think, as far as his character goes. But Eric Dane just does some really phenomenal work in this show. So I think it was a brilliant piece of casting. I feel like Euphoria is one of these casts that we are going to look back on in 20 years as one of those that gave us all of these breakout actors. And that's one of the cool things about watching this show. You just feel like you're in on the ground floor on a little bit of entertainment history because I really do feel like this cast is full of of people who, I mean, not necessarily everyone's going to be a star, but I think everyone in this cast is going to go on to be someone that we're going to know for something um, because they are just all phenomenal. The acting in this show is consistently what makes it so engaging to watch Um, because, as I said, I think that Levinson's writing, at times, the situations he comes up with are you know I mean we've seen these before it's stuff that we have seen before you know I mean shows about addiction and this show goes hard into it it's not like a soft soft touch look at addiction it's it's hardcore
0: we can do Control. Think Don't again, baby. It's okay. The fucking hospital. If you try to put me in a fucking hospital, I swear to God, we're gonna have a problem. Rue, no, put you're out of you control. the fucking... Put the fucking phone down. Where did you put it? Where'd you put my pills, Mom? Did you, where did you put it? I'm the calling the police. No, you can't. You can't yes. you. you will not attack me in my, my own home. home. I raised you. I did, okay? And you do not fucking scare me.
3: The the lying that has to go on for you to carry to pull this off, and lying to everyone, including yourself, but mostly everyone else around you. Uh, the reluctance to want to try to get clean, the suicidal uh, feelings that go along with being an addict. I mean, how it's just part and parcel for uh, for for being addicted, especially to something as hard as opiates like Rue is. Um, it goes really into this, and and also you know bad relationships. How. Um, we can get trapped in those and and how it, things that make us feel good might not be very good for us. I mean, these are not things that we haven't seen done before and on television in the last 20 years even. But uh, Euphoria does them in a way with a cast that is mostly unknown um, and in a setting that feels that that makes the whole thing just feel so much more frightening to watch it happen. Because these are not adults, but they sure as hell act like they are. And the adults in their lives have so little idea about what's going on that it is, again, scary, I think, to watch.
0: Now, what you want to do is make them second-guess their intuition. Make them feel like any valid concern is just their anxiety. Getting the best of them. Step two. Gaslight.
3: Um, But uh, I, I have just been very impressed with Euphoria as quickly become one of those shows that I really look forward to watching the next episode of. And there's not been a time where I feel like, oh, I am like I'm bummed I have to sit through another one. You know what I mean? It's just it's really getting very good as it goes along. But I think especially the first season was so confident and so well structured and well done. And there was one episode in particular that I wanted to point out to you in talking about Euphoria Uh, Episode four of the first season, it's called Shook Ones Part Two, and uh, you might know the title from a Mob Deep song, which every title from the first season, they're all named after different, like, classic hip-hop songs, really. Not all of them are classic, but they're all named after uh, different hip-hop songs. But uh, Shook Ones Part Two was the episode that really, to me, showed me that, yeah, this is, like, top-tier television. This isn't just good. This is great TV, um, because it's an episode where we've finally gotten to know all the characters pretty well and what are the moving pieces in their lives. And we spend almost the entire hour following from one character the, to the next, what is going on in this one single night at the town carnival and the way it's directed, the way the camera moves, the way it cuts from the way it goes from character to character so smoothly. Um, the way the characters kind of bump into each other and obviously they know each other, they're in this small town, they go to school together, whatever. Um, but the way that the storylines just just change on a a blink and it's so natural. Um, I was so impressed and the look, the sound, the feel, the performances, the the what's happening to the characters, honestly, this was the closest thing. This episode is the closest thing. To anyone replicating Magnolia that I have seen a filmmaker pull off since that movie came out in 1999. And if you know anything about me, you know that that's my favorite movie ever made. Like that is, to me, that's, I'm not saying it's the greatest movie ever made, but it is my favorite movie. It gets my blood pumping like no other movie does. It just makes the hair on my skin stand up every time I watch Magnolia. It, it It's just an, it's such a special movie to me, and it is just a perfect piece of filmmaking in my mind. But the, there's something in this episode, Shook One's Part Two, that comes so close to replicating the feeling I get from Magnolia and the style of it that I haven't seen others try to do and not get close. This comes close. So Sam Levinson reached that kind of area on television um, with his fourth episode of the first season of Euphoria. It was tremendous. I was blown away. Uh, by that episode 100 and uh, I, that was when for me like it was over this is this is one of my favorite shows on television now the whole first season honestly is so good at juggling interesting storylines for its characters if you like that kind of thing you like keeping up with a whole cast of characters not just one but a whole cast um the first season of euphoria is going to feel like a dream to you because that's what's happening and like i said writing situations not always the freshest sometimes very soapy well-worn territory
1: no no you expect
2: me to stand here next to my best friend who's been lying to me about fucking my ex-boyfriend i'm okay literally gonna get violent there is no need to get violent okay because we are having an intervention
3: but the the dialogue is good and uh the look of the show is so great the style of the production is so slick Um, and the acting is just phenomenal in a way that it consistently makes Euphoria one of my favorite shows that I've seen in the last 20 years. I'm telling you, I think this show is fantastic. I think it's, um, you know, it's going to go down as a classic HBO series, I feel like. And that's really saying something. They're always looking for that show. And I think Euphoria is it right now. I can't think of another show that is kind of more exciting to watch on TV these days. Everyone has a favorite character. On euphoria, and they almost never overlap. Like anyone you talk to, it, it, everyone's got a favorite character because it's a huge cast, and all the characters are pretty different, and all of them are despicable in some ways, very charming in other ways. Nobody almost no one in this cast is a hundred percent a villain. There's like one character, Nate, who is obviously the closest thing to a true villain that the show has. But even he, even this show gets It tries to make you understand where he's coming from, why he is this way. It doesn't make you root for him, but it makes you understand that these things are not coming out of left field. And how this guy has been fucked up and what it is that has made him the way that he is, which is just truly a person that you would want nothing to do with. And Rue, I think at one point, says that he's scary, and he legitimately is. uh, He is scary, but everyone's going to have a favorite character. Everyone's going to have characters that they can't stand. Sometimes that may flip in the course of a single episode, uh, and those allegiances are going to shift as storylines come and go. But what I really like about Euphoria is that the show is not afraid to show its characters at their worst, and I'm talking about pretty much every single one of them. They're, you know, this show is not full of like Superman characters where you're just like, oh, you know, they're going to save the day in the end. And they're going to be a good guy. And, uh, you know, I mean, what's not to like about this person? There are no obvious heroes here. And I think in TV, that's, you know, long time ago, we kissed that goodbye. That's common. But this show goes to the extreme. Like, you really, Rue is a character that I really root for a lot of times. But then as the second season goes on, she gets to a point where you're like, you know, it's hard for me to keep giving her the benefit of the doubt. And the only reason I do is because Z- Zendaya is so Fucking charming and likable naturally, um, and just seems so down to earth and cool that I'm like, okay, I'll give I'll give Rue another chance just because Zendaya is that good. Like that's how strong her performance is here. And Zendaya won the Oscar la- or won the Emmy last year, I should say. And you know, I could see her winning it again for the second season because she's just that good in this show. Um, but it's a it's a stellar cast. Anything that you've heard about Euphoria being um salacious and it definitely is like i have n- full stop never seen so many naked men in one series like showing penises on tv is you know has happened over time, I mean, we most of the great show, like I've told you before, I'm a big fan of Oz and Oz was like loaded with male full frontal nudity. I mean, it took place in a prison. So how could it not be? But Euphoria takes that and took, goes to the extreme. It is like. Every like every male character pretty much, you're going to see them fully naked. And you're going to see some of the, the women characters naked as well. Uh, but the men, you definitely are going to see naked. And it's just, that, it's just kind of shifting that power dynamic um, in a way that a lot of shows have been afraid to do for whatever reason. And it's one of the things that makes the show feel like you never know what you're going to see. And it is wild. There are some seriously wild scenes that do not just happen because they wanted to show nudity. Um, it's really getting a point across as well. So I've really liked it. I've really felt like I'm watching something unpredictable and something that could go anywhere, and that is such a rare thing to feel, especially in the world of television. But here we are again talking about HBO again being the network to do this. So shout-out to them, and shout-out to Sam Levinson and his cast – Uh, From what I understand behind the scenes, there's a little bit of drama there on the making of the show. It seems to be kind of a rough set to be on, which I can see because the subject matter is heavy and uh, there's so many characters. I mean, some are inevitably going to get left out, but I look forward to a lot more episodes of Euphoria and seeing where this thing's going to go, even though I don't feel like it's probably going to go anywhere too good. Uh, but if you want to check out both seasons right now of Euphoria, they are streaming now on HBO Max, and more is to come. So I'm a a convert, man. I'm a huge fan. Big Euphoria lover now. And um, I think you will be, too, if you like, you know, serious character drama, if you love just watching acting um, and you like kind of edgy filmmaking and stuff like that. I think you'll really dig Euphoria. And like I said, that fourth episode, Shook Ones Part 2 closest thing to magnolia anybody's done since that movie came out so that's about the highest praise i can give it so shout out to sam levinson and his cast for what they have done on this show because it has been a hell of a ride and i look forward to see where it's going to go next check out both seasons streaming now on hbo max
0: I'd say she's suffering from obsessive-compulsive disorder. It's not like I was physically abused. Attention deficit disorder. Or had a shortage of clean water. General anxiety disorder. Or was molested by a family member. And possibly bipolar disorder. But she's a little young to tell. (laughs) So explain this shit to me. Honey, it's just the way your brain was hardwired. Plenty of great, intelligent, funny, interesting, and creative people have struggled with the same things you struggle with. Like who? Uh... Vincent Van Gogh, Sylvia Plath, and your favorite, Britney Spears. She's Oh, my God. She is completely lost.
3: All right, I'm going to kick back, take a sip of some water here and pop in a Halls, and then I'm going to toss things over to Andy, and we're going to see what he's listening to right now. Um, when i come back on the other side i'll talk about a couple of best picture nominees i watched in the last month west side story and nightmare alley and i'll tell you one of them i loved the other one i was left wanting a little bit more and we'll talk about that and i'll also tell you about the best thing i watched this month coming up uh, on the stream police but for now take it away andy
1: Alright, it is nice to be reacquainted with you. And if uh, if it's your first time listening, then it's, well, it's great to meet your acquaintance. My name is Andy Sedlak. I like to talk about music around here. Now, if you haven't already, please just take a second uh, to rate and review us. This is episode number 99. That's hard to believe, isn't it? 99 episodes. Now, there's no better time to... To rate us, then now, uh, push us up the rankings ahead of our 100th episode, the big centennial. Thank you, uh, thanks in advance, thanks so much. Now let's get on with it.
2: Get on with it!
1: Have you ever gone to the well too many times? Ever taken too many bites of the apple? Ever outstay your welcome? Musicians do it all the time. Careers go up and down. They ebb, they flow. Some of the biggest musical moments of all time have been comebacks. When musicians are in the wilderness and, and then they triumphantly return. I'm thinking about the Elvis comeback special in 68. Uh, Tina Turner's return in the 80s. I mean, she went from recording like disco covers to selling out stadiums, and then she she really never went away after that. Also in the 80s, Aerosmith, Run DMC, that brought uh, that band back into the chips. Or when Eminem put out Not Afraid after battling addiction for several years. Then there's ACDC's Back in Black, released after the death of their singer, Bon Scott, and Johnny Cash, covering Nine Inch Nails Hurt. That video... Uh, Jesus, that you know that video was powerful. What
4: have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end, and you could have it all.
1: Of dirt. I will... So we're well aware of the comebacks that worked. And it's wonderful when it works, when your favorite artists are back better than ever. But, but what about all of those comeback attempts that didn't work? When record companies pump in millions of dollars and artists put their reputations on the line and it just doesn't work doesn't work they're hoping for uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers California Cation you know in, in that instance it had been a few years since Blood Sugar Sex Magic and they nailed it they were back but not every band achieves that it's really hard to do so today let's look at three comeback attempts that didn't work botched comeback attempts. Naturally, the first instance that comes to mind is Guns N' Roses and their album, Chinese Democracy. You may have missed it, but Chinese Democracy was released in 2008. I remember buying it the day it came out. Best Buy had a, a huge uh, cardboard display promoting it. My uh, my buddy also bought it. We were both uh, both big Guns and Roses fans, and it was their first album in in 15 years. And we were ready for it. We were ready, but after a few <laughs> after a few spends, <laughs> we. We went back to appetite for destruction. So, so what happened? Well, it sucked. The album cost $13 million to make. Axl Rose, at one point, was spending two hundred and fifty dollars a month to produce the album. There have been several think pieces written uh, that speculate that it is indeed the most expensive album ever made. And it took many, many years to finish. And when the moment arrived, thud. Boring! Blender magazine called it ludicrous. Pitchfork complained that they took so long working on it that it already sounded dated by the time it came out. When Chinese Democracy was released, it debuted at number three, uh, when it was expected to easily top the charts. Uh, Sales dropped almost 80% in its second week, so it went from being number three To number 18 in just a week. So the comeback didn't work. And Guns N' Roses wouldn't achieve a proper comeback until 2016, another eight years. That was after Slash and bassist Duff McKagan rejoined the band and and they went on tour. However, they still haven't put out an album. Chinese Democracy remains their most recent effort. The thing is, the, the album has its moments. I mean, it's, it's almost too much to take in in, in one or two settings, but, but there are songs that are kind of interesting. Here's one called Better. And here's another cut from Chinese Democracy called Street of Dreams.
0: All the love in the world couldn't save you. All the innocence inside. You know I tried. to see you and how you left yourself behind You know I wouldn't want
1: Nevertheless, it didn't work. You can't argue with the public. On to our second selection. This is a band that sold over a million copies of an album in 1999. Their next album, out the next year in 2000, sold that amount in its first week alone. That made it the biggest first week debut for a rock band uh, in about 10 years at that point. These dudes were moving large amounts of records, and then it stopped. Who am I talking about? Oh, you know. Lint Biscuit, the most Neanderthal knuckle-dragging band my generation ever got behind. They were... They were huge. Like a chump. Hey, should
0: I be feeling bad? Should I be feeling good? It's kind of sad. I'm the laughing stock of the neighborhood. And hey, you would think that I.
1: You may remember this song. This is their highest charting single. Limp Biscuit appealed to a a generation of Jinko and Echo wearing preteens. It was as close as they could get to danger. Not that there was ever any real danger in Limp Biscuit, only empty-headedness. But but we hadn't figured that out yet. Unfortunately for Limp Biscuit, we eventually did. And after 2000, uh, they couldn't get arrested. After the Chocolate Starfish album set a first-week sales record, their 2001 album, New Old Songs, stalled at number 26. They took two years to regroup, and they put out a record called Results May Vary in 2003. It did better. Not great, but better. So, so now the pressure was on for a full-fledged comeback, and they they could not get their shit together. The most they could muster was an EP in 2005 called The Unquestionable Truth Part 1, but it was such a bust that the band never followed up with a Part 2 two they figured it wasn't their moment yet so they waited and waited and waited and then in 2011 2011 we got the proper comeback from limp biscuit and it was called as is only a limp biscuit album could get away with gold cobra here's the song that led the way the first single it's called shotgun
0: that's the sound of a shotgun everybody jumps from the- Shotgun in my name.
1: see i'm looking at it here other tracks include douchebag killer in you and shark attack (laughs) these guys these guys were such boobs uh so did it work were they back well i guess we know the answer don't we After an eight-year wait, the album couldn't get any higher than number 16. They pulled out all the stops, too. Fred Durst even used auto-tune, which was was hot at the time. Uh, He he did it in a song appropriately titled Auto-Tunage. They waited another 10 years and tried to come back again, so another decade passed. Uh, The band released their sixth album, just last year, it was called Still Sucks. And their lead single was an embarrassing attempt to poke fun at themselves. It was called Dad Vibes.
0: Check out your dad with the swag on the floor. Mama going brag when I walk in the dough. Y'all ain't never seen a gorilla in the mist walking line so fine with a blindfold. Keep in mind, though, hot dad riding in on a ride.
1: And that's where Limp Biscuit is these days. Uh, and this time, well, this time it may be over for good. Last year's record peaked at number 166. Finally, on to our third selection. Another comeback effort that did not work. And it's one of the all-time great American rock bands, too. This is The Doors. Light My Fire is Vintage Doors. This is the band that sold 34 million albums in the States and 100 million albums worldwide. Uh, This is the band that had eight consecutive gold albums. And uh, this is the band that sold 8 million singles. Think about that. 8 million singles. But the band was put in a rough spot after the death of legendary frontman Jim Morrison. That was in... 1971, now they followed through with a planned LP later that year, and they tried again in 1972, but then the band folded. That was officially it. Or was it? In 2002, Ray Manzarek and Bobby Krieger, who played uh, keys and guitar, formed a group called The Doors of the 21st Century. They never released an album, but toured extensively, and they were sued promptly for using the name Doors. Uh, So they changed it to D21C, basically abbreviating the name that they were sued for using. Uh, That didn't work. The public didn't know who they were. So they tried going by Riders on the Storm, obviously named after the famous Doors song. That, too, was short-lived. So finally, they they just went by their own names when they went out on the road, but but it gets even more bizarre. After the remaining Doors were unable to call themselves The Doors, they started experimenting with hip-hop artists and EDM artists, uh, Skrillex in particular. And it seems the keyboard player Ray Manzarek formed kind of a, a an actual friendship uh, with Skrillex. Here they are on a song called Breaking a Sweat. This is Skrillex with... The Doors. Skrillex and The Doors. Uh, did you know they recorded together? Well, you do now. They also recorded with the rapper Tech 9 That was in 2013. And the song itself was called Strange 2013. Here it is.
2: Let's get it. Fred, Rick, Fred Rick. Robbie, Krieger, Robbie Krieger. Ray Manzarek. Ray Manzarek. John Dinsmore. John Dinsmore. Tech Tech 9 and Mr. Jim Morrison.
1: None of these collaborations between the remaining Doors and and 21st century artists resulted in any notoriety. Although they are interesting, I'm assuming this is the first you've heard about it. Uh, I I didn't know about any of this until I I went down the rabbit hole in in my research. But it is all over now, as uh, Ray Manzarek died in 2013. I think he was sort of the, the driver behind these later collaborations. And that, my friends, gives you three solid examples of how hard it is to climb your way back into the limelight. That... Is your lesson for today? All right. You know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify by simply searching for Stream Police. Every month we add five more songs, and this month they will all be country songs. So, saddle up cowpokes. Our first selection is, well, it's called Cowpoke. By colder wall. I ain't
4: got a dime in these old worn-out jeans, so I'll stop eating steak and I'll go back to beans. I'll pick up a tennis spot in Prescott. I know riding the Bronx.
1: Second, it's ninety nine years by the great Ernest Tubb.
4: Honey, I've known all the time you don't love me so much. But I would go right out of my mind If I lost your touch You say if I don't want you around Just let you know But it took a while to get up the nerve To tell you to go I'm giving you 99 years To pack up your clothes You've got just 99 years hit the road If you don't stop running around and start treating me nice I'm giving you 99 years to get up and get out of my life
1: Then uh, see if you can tell where this guy's from This is called Poor Man's Son by Charlie Robeson
4: I was a boy I was a good little boy Bones
0: He's from Texas.
1: He's from Texas. The, uh, the arrangement gives it away there. Okay, so that was Charlie Robeson. Here is his brother, Bruce Robeson, who I actually saw uh, live one time. I saw him in Dayton, Ohio, uh, at an establishment called the Canal Street Tavern. It's not there anymore, but there were maybe 13 people inside uh, the night that I saw him. And this was one of the songs that was played. It's called Go To Your Heart, and it's about a one-night stand.
4: Here in the morning Things sure Look different You are still Beautiful I'm all gone But deep In the night With a bottle Of courage A man will see Anything From being alone But don't Let it go to your heart I know you've been trying to find
1: Finally, it's Stripes by Brandy Clark. Whoa.
0: You were lying there with nothing on but a goofy little print and a platinum blonde. I can't believe you do that on our bed. I got a pistol and I got a bullet and a pissed off finger just pitching to pull it. don't look good and orange and I hate stripes
1: whoa let's hear a little more of that Brandy Clark and stripes
0: whoa I can fall in love with the prison guard I can sell cigarettes in the prison yard don't think hard time would be that hard on me I can pick up trash on the side of the road but I can't
1: That's it. I thank you for listening. I look forward to uh, seeing you next month, talking to you next month for our 100th episode. I appreciate, uh, appreciate your attention. Behave yourselves now, okay? See you.
3: Thank you very much, Andy. Always good to hear from you, my friend. I hope we can get together soon. You can always find that Spotify playlist, well, where else? Right there at Spotify. Just search Stream Police Podcast. You can also find this show on Spotify as well as pretty much all the places where you can get podcasts. We are available for you to check out. All right, let's get to a couple of Best Picture nominees. I've been whittling my way through the list of the nominees ahead of the Oscars, which are coming a little later this year than they even usually do. Uh, because of the pandemic and all that. So uh, in the last month, I have watched uh, Nightmare Alley and West Side Story. I want to tell you about both of those. First off, let me start with Nightmare Alley, which is streaming now on HBO Max and on Hulu by the time you are listening to this show. I caught it on HBO Max, and I got to tell you, I loved the look of Of this, And what else would you expect from Guillermo del Toro? He's one of the the best as far as a production design director. His movies always look like a million bucks. His movies, to me, look the way that Tim Burton always imagined or wanted his movies to look. And Burton's always got a great look. You know, I'm not trying to shit on Tim Burton. He's got a great look to his movies. But Guillermo del Toro is like, this is what those Burton movies like. This is what they want to be. Are the way his films look and I'm talking about movies like the devil's backbone and the shape of water and of course pan's labyrinth a modern masterpiece Um, and now nightmare alley is out this is his latest movie this is his first film that he's directed since he did the shape of water which won the Oscar and the shape of water was a very like romantic very pure at heart kind of a film And it certainly had frightening moments. It had the great monster effects, all that kind of stuff. But it was almost like classic monster movie kind of stuff because the monster was, you know, had a human heart, basically. And more so than the humans, a lot of the humans in the movie did. But it was unique in that it was graphic in its sexual relationship between a monster and a woman. And also it it got just so into their relationship Um in ways that you just didn't expect, I think, when you were first going into it. Uh, Again, not a soft touch, but the movie was so sweet, I thought, The Shape of Water was, and it was really refreshing to me. And I had no problem with it winning Best Picture because I really found it to be a moving uh, uh, film. Nightmare Alley, on the other hand, this is a pitch-black neo-noir. It's based on a book which was turned into a noir film uh, you know, decades ago, and kind of at the height of noir, and I've never seen the original, and I've never read the book, so I'll just say that. This is my only, um, th- this is all the experience I have with the story of Nightmare Alley, but from what I understand, the two movies are pretty similar storyline-wise. Um, this movie is maybe a little bit more faithful to the book than the original was, but both are very grim, very dark. They you know, begin in a lonely place and they end in a lonely place. And that's exactly what you expect with the noir movie. And that's what Nightmare Alley does. It takes you to the abyss and it just throws you into it uh, instead of trying to uh, pull you away and make you feel some kind of redemption. There is no redemption to be found in Nightmare Alley. So if you're looking to be uplifted, look elsewhere. So I went into this fully expecting to be blown away, knocked on my ass, but at the end, I was left just a little bit cold. I was left wanting more. I was left wondering why I didn't feel like this was one of the best movies I've seen in the last few years, because all the elements were there. Del Toro is a master. I think... The script was just fine. I mean, it, it's a it's a cool story. The look of the movie was phenomenal. The cast is brilliant. Bradley Cooper leads it off. And I'm just so-so on Bradley Cooper, so maybe that's where it begins and ends for me. Because he's not one of my favorite actors. Rooney Mara is there. She is one of my favorites. I really do like her. Kate Blanchett, hit or miss on her. Um, This, to me, was one of the misses. I didn't like her work very much in this movie. Richard Jenkins, he's phenomenal. David Strathairn, very good, as usual. Um, So it's a great cast. And there's more people in it than that that are great. Ron Perlman's in it as well. Steals a couple of scenes. Um, But I felt like this was like two different movies. And I didn't like the second movie nearly as much as I liked the first movie. And also, I thought that everything that happened in this movie was kind of telegraphed. Um, so I wasn't really surprised by anything like even the ending was, you could have seen it coming a million miles away. Um, Willem Dafoe also is in it. uh, I should say he's, he does very good work in it, which what else would you expect? But I was just left in the end. Like I loved all the stuff in the, at the, the carnival. So what the, what the movie's about? is bradley cooper plays this guy who's a drifter at the beginning of the movie he does some, we see him do something horrible we don't really know why he did it or what exactly happened but we see him doing something horrible and then he just gets on a bus and gets off wherever and he ends up joining up with this uh and this is all set in like the 1940s late 30s early 40s that kind of a depression era uh, kind of a thing. And boy, it is it depressing. Uh, money is in short supply, though, everywhere. People are just kind of doing what they can to get by. And Bradley Cooper just joins up with this um, carnival that he happens to his bus stops near. And he gets a job with this carnival after he goes in and sees a show and, you know, figures that he can work there. And he ends up working his way up in the carnival And uh, becoming a pretty important guy there in pretty short time because he's really good at talking. Um, He's a a very slick guy, uh, perfect for the carnival kind of atmosphere. Um, But in the end, he ends up kind of believing his own hype a little bit too much because he gets into mentalism. And learns from these masters of mentalism, and that's you know reading fortunes and 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 telling people what they're thinking about and stuff like that, uh, contacting spirits and all that. So he's he learns how to do it like a magician. He knows the tricks of how to do it, um, but then he ends up becoming so successful at this that he ends up conning people and conning the wrong people and believing his own nonsense um in the end and uh the, you know the 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 signs are just on the wall from the beginning that it's going to end badly for everyone involved and of course it does like I said there's no no redemption to be found in this movie so but I I loved all the stuff at the carnival loved it like that was I was so locked in at that point I I was like this movie's great I mean all these characters um, the stories that are, that can be told here between these characters, but then it, we only spend probably an hour there, and then the last hour or so is really just with Bradley Cooper and Kate Blanchett. Rooney Mara's is in it a little bit, but not as much as I wonder to be. David Strathairn's gone, Perlman's gone. Like it, it's the the cast shrinks a lot in the second half of the movie. Willem defoe has gone. And it becomes really like a character study instead of an ensemble movie, which is what I kind of thought I was watching more of. Um, And I just, there was something about the last bit of the movie that I did not love. And I didn't like the art deco look of it nearly as much as I loved the creepy carnival look where it was. It felt like a horror movie at first. And this movie certainly does have scary stuff in it, scary ideas, but it's not otherworldly. It's all very explainable and it's all very logical. Um, so there, there's just something, again, kind of cold about this movie that isn't usually there in a Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro movie. His movies usually do have a lot of otherworldly things that you can't explain. Even once the movie's over, you still can't explain how exactly uh, that happened. You know what I mean? Whether it's in the Devil's Backbone, why didn't the bomb go off? Uh, how you know how were those ghosts real like you know these kind of things that leave you wondering and in the shape of water you know I mean how was this even possible there are a lot of questions you have when it's all said and done what does this mean for humanity but in Nightmare Alley it's all just kind of there and it's all explainable and there's no magic the magic is just all man made and it's all just a hoax and that's the point. But it left me wanting more. And it didn't feel like it was up to Guillermo del Toro's lofty uh, standards that he has kind of set out for us. I just felt like this was lesser Guillermo del Toro. So it's up for a ton of Oscars. And it certainly is a gorgeous looking movie. Like I said, cast is great. It's not like Bradley Cooper sucks in it. I think he gives it his all. He's just not an actor for me that that he doesn't do it for me. He hasn't really blown me away. Um, the, A Star is Born is probably where I liked him the most. Um, Silver Linings Playbook, maybe. He was good in that. But it, I just don't fully buy him for whatever reason. Um, and Kate Blanchett, I just didn't like in this uh, at all. And that's rare for me because usually I do like her. Like I said, I think she's kind of hit or miss. Uh, and this one was a miss for me with her. But, you know, it's it's one of those movies that to me was okay in the end, but definitely didn't blow me away, definitely didn't feel like this should be a Best Picture winner, definitely didn't hit me the way that The Shape of Water did or Pan's Labyrinth did or The Devil's Backbone did. Um, just didn't get me that way. This was, like I said, I felt like it was lesser del Toro. So, you know what, don't at me. You want to fight about it, you can write me an email. TheClintDavis at gmail.com. I'm sure Andy will have uh, something to say about that because I think he really enjoyed this movie. And I was watching it and I thought Andy would enjoy it because he does love noir movies, you know, about as much as anyone I know. Uh, that's That stuff is so dark. Those movies are hard to watch because they are just pitch black. Uh, and I like my fair share of them. Uh, but the, man, this one was grim. And maybe it's the pandemic and all this stuff, but it's like, oh my God, I need something. To pull me out a little bit more, to give me something a little bit more magical, and there was just none of that to be found in Nightmare Alley. So I, I, I didn't love it. So this was not. This is not going to be one of my picks for the Oscars that I, I think you should run away with it. Production design wise, certainly fantastic. Costumes great, hair and makeup great, all that kind of stuff. Uh, visual effects also looked really good. Um, but. Overall, I just was left a little flat by Nightmare Alley, which is uh, streaming now if you want to check it out on HBO Max and Hulu. Watch it on a dark black night.
4: How do you ever get a guy to geek? Oh, I ain't going to crap you up. It ain't easy. You got to pick up a broken drunk, a real alky, a two-bottle-a-day full seat. Pick him up from where? Nightmare Alley, train tracks, flap houses, you name it. A lot of folks came back from the war, addicted to the poppy, the booze. Now, opium really sinks its claws, but you reel them in with booze. You tell them, I got a little job for you. It's a temporary job. Make sure you emphasize that. Just temporary until we get ourselves another gig.
3: If you are looking for something to get you a little bit more uplifted, to make you feel a little bit more energized about life uh, here during these dwindling days of the pandemic, hopefully. What you need to watch, streaming now on Disney+, and on HBO Max, is Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. This one I just got done with the other day, and you want to talk about something that knocked me on my ass. I think, uh, for whatever reason... I underestimated Spielberg going into this because, first off, it's a remake. It's a remake of a classic. It's a remake of a Best Picture winning movie. It's a remake of one of the most beloved American musicals ever on the stage or on the screen. Um, It feels like lazy, right? When you get a filmmaker as accomplished as Steven Spielberg and they don't make him a whole lot more accomplished than him and he's doing remakes, you're kind of like, I mean, is he just old now? And it's like he just doesn't want to... He doesn't want to try anymore because, I mean, I feel like Spielberg's movies have not felt essential for about the last 20 years. Right. I mean, go back and look at his filmography since probably the early 2000s. I don't think they have been essential viewing Um, and, and movies like Catch Me If You Can and Munich, I think, were the exceptions there in the last 20 years. As far as those were essential movies. But West Side Story, I'm telling you right now, this is the best thing Steven Spielberg has made since 2005 when he made Munich. I don't know if it's better than Munich because I consider that to be like a masterpiece. Uh, But this is right up there. And this is one of the best movies that Spielberg has made in the 2000s, no qualifier whatsoever this is a very very good this is high level steven spielberg big time filmmaking and that is exactly what i wanted to see so underestimate steven spielberg or your own peril um it's just a big movie and it feels larger than life it feels Fun, like it's just full of life. It's like bursting at the seams. Uh, the dance moves, the color that are that's brought into the frames, the the phenomenal old cars driving by in the background, the costumes, the music, the Stephen Sondheim Leonard Bernstein songs. Just they are as great now as they ever were. Uh, Maybe even better because this cast singing it is loaded with Broadway veterans and it's not bogged down with like Hollywood matinee idols, which was what the the 1960s version of West Side Story that won the Oscar was just full of like actors who couldn't sing. And they dubbed over Natalie Wood. And, you know, I mean, it was just that they wanted people who looked a certain way and they were using brown face even on Rita Moreno, who actually was Latino. Latina and one of the only Latina actors in the entire cast, um, they put brown face on her because her skin wasn't dark enough for them uh, when they made that movie. So it was so inauthentic and but what made West Side Story so exciting, the old one. With well, the songs and the dance numbers, the choreography, the lighting, the color, which is just so over exaggerated, just blows you away when you look at it. Um, it's one of those movies that just still looks great and that you I would love to see on a big screen. I've never seen the original on the big screen. This one as well. I wish I could have seen this one on a big screen. I watched it on my TV, though, um, and I had so much fun with West Side Story. It was so much better than I thought it was going to be. Um, And musicals can be either like the most fun thing you've ever watched or just totally dreadful and you can't wait till the end. And thankfully, this was one of the former Spielberg gave it his all. I think this was a very personal project to him. This was not him showing up and playing it safe. Um, He gets a hell of a lot of good work out of these actors who are all, like I said, Broadway veterans, good singers, good dancers. Except for Ansel Elgort, who is the only actor in the cast who really is not a big Broadway guy, but he does great work here. Like he earns it Um, and he sings live in the in the film a couple of times. uh, From what I read, he does sing all of his own songs, but I think he performed a couple, couple of them live on film like in takes, which is incredible and makes the movie not feel like it was. Loaded with lip syncing, which is another thing that kills a lot of movie musicals that you just you can tell for whatever reason, like it just feels fake. It feels like they're just singing to a track. But in this movie, uh, several of the performances were done live on camera, and it just gives it something that you very rarely see when you're watching a filmed musical. Uh, The cast, though, led by Ansel Elgort, you got uh, Rachel Zegler plays Maria and uh, Elgort plays Tony And Rachel Zegler is a total unknown. She was like 17 years old when she was cast in this. Apparently, she went to one of those big cattle call casting events. Thousands of uh, women and girls want to be Maria, of course, in Steven Spielberg's version of West Side Story. I mean, this is one of those performances, one of those roles that could make your life. And they pick this girl who had played Maria in like high school performances and stuff like that. And Spielberg said he thinks she's the best Maria that there's that he's ever seen. Um, and he's a huge lover of West Side Story. So, And and I really did think she was great in this movie. You did not think, like, she looked like a teenager, which she's supposed to be, but she didn't feel like a teenager singing songs. I mean, this was a big performance, and uh, she, she did great work. So it's really always cool to see somebody unknown jump off the screen like that. And the cast here is full of unknowns as far as movie uh, audiences are concerned. Mike Faced, who is a big... Broadway star and anyone who's a nerd of musical theater will know Mike Faist, but he is so good as Riff the uh, like right-hand man of Tony the leader of the Jets uh, gang that he's in of course if you don't know West Side story it's the it's the story of Romeo and Juliet just set in like 1950s New York. Uh, in this slum in New York that is being torn down. Um, and so the turf of the Jets, which is a gang of like all white kids, children of Irish, Polish, Italian immigrants, um, you know, and, and they kind of feel like it's their turf versus the Sharks, which is a gang of all Puerto Rican immigrant children, um, all teenagers again. And they are they're brutal gangs. I mean, these are kids who don't feel like they have any kind of future. They're not going to college. They just want to cut each other's throats, and that's how they're going to get their get their jollies, basically. Um, and you know, they the neighborhood they're trying to live in is being razed to the ground. And so, what else can they do? I mean, none of the adult there are no adults around, uh, as a lot of the songs describe it. The parents of the uh, jets are all you know in bars somewhere, you know, drunk out of their minds. They don't care where their kids are. The kids were all accidents anyway. So they're looked at with scorn. And uh, so these kids have nothing better to do. The whole movie takes place in the course of about two, three days. And uh, it is the story of Romeo and Juliet, because, of course, uh, Maria is Puerto Rican and Tony is a Polish kid. And so it's like a big no, no. He has just come out of jail. He's on parole. So he's trying to keep his nose clean, all that stuff, Uh, but has a very violent past. And Falls head over heels in love with Maria the first night he meets her at this, you know, kind of social dance function that they put on at the local school. And uh, the the story goes on from there. And obviously, you, if you know anything about Romeo and Juliet, you know, it's a pretty big bummer as well as Shakespeare uh, tended to to make his plays. Um, and this movie does it, it is. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't have a, a happy ending, to say the least. But the difference between it and Nightmare Alley is this movie still made me feel really good for most of its runtime, And it did feel magical. It felt like I was watching movie magic, honestly. Um, Another cast member I want to point out, Ariana DeBose, who I didn't know her, uh, but I guess she was in Hamilton on stage. And again, somebody that Broadway people will know. But now you're going to know her as a movie actor because she's the only actor in the cast nominated for an Oscar. She's up for Best Supporting Actress um for her work in this film and uh she plays uh, Maria's best friend Anita and is just this really you know vivacious just totally um kind of in your face Puerto Rican girl and is uh, dating Maria's brother who is a huge hothead and you know of course wants to kill Tony Uh, for daring fall in love and daring dance with his little sister. And Rita Moreno is actually in it again. So she's, uh, you know, the most high profile actor to come back from the original West Side Story movie and have a major role here in the new one uh, as she plays kind of Tony's mentor. She's a Puerto Rican lady who gives him a job um, at her store and uh, ends up being kind of a mentor to all of the Jets as it ends up being. And uh, she's kind of like everybody's mom. But uh, it's a really heartfelt, well-done, serious piece of filmmaking. And there's so much muscle in this movie. There's no fat whatsoever. And this is a movie that's almost three hours long. But there's so much muscle here. It is just great dance numbers, brilliant uh, singing that does not sound fake, doesn't sound auto-tuned, looks like it's coming out of the actors' mouths right when they're doing it. The dialogue during the non-singing Parts is so much better than it was in the 1960s version because they got rid of all that dopey fake slang that they made up to try to make them sound like real teenagers. Uh, And the whole thing just feels a lot more authentic because you actually have an entire cast of Latino actors uh, that Spielberg was insistent on putting into this movie. He didn't want anybody who wasn't Latino background um, to play a part of the Sharks. Um, which is, you know, I mean, just night and day from the 1960s production. So no brown face here, folks. And you got all kinds of different skin tones and you got, you know, I I mean, this is really a very diverse presentation of what should be a diverse story. That's the whole point of it. Uh, The whole the whole idea of West Side Story is about racism. It's about hate. uh, It's about division um, for no reason other than we look a certain way and our parents were from a certain place. And that's the whole point of the story, really. I mean, it is a love story, but it's about, you know, why is this love story such a hotly contested thing? Because really the way it should go is Tony and Maria, two single kids, both nice kids, meet each other, um, and they're both pretty mature, especially compared to a lot of the other kids in the movie. They meet each other at a dance. They start dating or whatever, and everybody's like, oh, cool, that's great for you guys. That's the way it should have gone. But, of course... It doesn't go that way because of all this built in hatred that is uh, thrown in and all the hopelessness that uh, these kids are just exuding and feeling all the time because of the way society talks to them, the way that uh, the police talk to them, the way that their neighborhood is literally being torn down to build apartments for rich people um, and to build uh, the Lincoln Center of the Performing Arts. So it's a place that they will never be able to probably afford tickets to go to a show in their lives. So it's all just, everything is insulting them all the time. So the best thing they can do is go out and be violent. It's the best way they can feel alive. And like I said, the songs just truly just jump out of your speakers. The music sounds great. And Spielberg directs the holy hell out of this movie. I I just was blown away by how much I enjoyed West Side Story. As soon as it was over, I wanted to watch it again. I loved it. Uh, and it, to me right now going into the clubhouse is my favorite of all the best picture nominees that I've seen so far this year. So, uh, Spielberg's getting my vote as far as right now goes. Now I've still gotta, uh, I, I still got to, uh, I still got to watch the uh, power of the dog and I still got to watch a couple other ones. Um, so I'll get back to you after that, but right now West side story is it for me. I, I was just, it hit, I think it hit me at the right time, but it's just unmistakably a great piece of filmmaking and it is just thrilling to see steven spielberg back making movies that are this uh just full of life and full of energy and just essential because i don't feel like we've had essential spielberg in a long time but this this is essential spielberg this is a this is about as good a remake as you're ever going to see i think this will become the definitive movie version of west side story you can kind of forget about the old one other than for maybe uh camp and historical value because this is it to me. This is the definitive take on West Side Story. And even Steven Sondheim said so himself before he died, which was shortly before the movie came out. But I guess he saw a final cut of it and he said he thought it blew away the, uh, the 1960s version. So he was a great lover of this movie before he passed away. So what bigger compliment could you get than that? West Side Story. It's up for a slew of Oscars, including Best Picture, and it is streaming right now for you on Disney Plus and HBO Max. Could not recommend it more. Give it a watch.
0: Tonight, tonight, it all tonight. I saw you I know now I was right, for here you are, and what was just a world, there's a star tonight.
3: The original West Side Story is actually streaming now on HBO Max as well if for whatever reason you uh, wanted to check that one out also for comparison's sake. that Watching both of them, though, that'll give you about six hours of, of uh, movie watching in uh, a night if you want to check them, if you want to blow through both of them. All right, let's talk about the best thing I watched this month. And uh, believe it or not, it was not West Side Story, although that did come close. Best thing I watched this month was a different movie from 2021 that is not up for any Oscars. Um, And it comes from those mind bending uh, movie producers at the A24 studio known for, you know, perennial favorites like um, Hereditary and *Midsummer* and Uncut Gems and all kinds of other ones have come out of A24 over the years that. Uh, they've kind of become like a lifestyle brand of their own. Honestly, people like to wear their shirts and stuff. And how often can you say that about a movie studio? But anyway, the A 24 movie I'm talking about that I watched this month was the green Knight that came out uh, early in 2021 and uh, stars Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander and Joel Edgerton, among others. Again, this is a got a great cast in it, but this is a modern take. It's not even modern because it, it doesn't modernize the story. It's just a a auteur take, I guess I should say, on the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which is about as old a story as you can get. It's almost a thousand years old. If you've studied Arthurian legends at all, Sir Gawain was one of the uh, Knights of the Round Table and Dev Patel plays him in this film. So it was a good, unique piece of casting. A lot of people were like, well, I mean, you would have never guessed to cast an Indian guy, Indian-British guy, as one of the Knights of the Round Table. But Patel really gives it his all. I think he's become such an impressive actor over the last like decade or so um, since his big breakout turn in uh, Slumdog Millionaire all those years ago. That's more than a decade now. I mean, that's a while. I feel like we've kind of watched him grow up. But anyway, he plays Sir Gawain. And what happens is that at the beginning of the movie, it's got a phenomenal setup. Gawain's looking for a way to prove himself to King Arthur. He's Arthur's nephew. And so this green knight rolls into the where the round table is on Christmas night. Comes in on his steed. He's just this ugly, big, ugly bastard. Otherworldly. Looks like he's made out of a tree. He's green, as the name would suggest. And he's got this huge axe with him. And what he says is, I challenge... He's talking to King Arthur. I challenge one of your knights to battle me and if they land a single blow on me i will give them my axe for a year but then when the year's up i'm going to give them back whatever it was they gave me so as he says be it a nick on the cheek or whatever else so if they cut him on the cheek a year from then he's going to follow he's going to find them or they're actually going to have to find him come before him and he's going to cut them on the cheek. He's going to give them back whatever they give him. So what does Sir Gawain do? He's so clever, he decides to do the duel, and he cuts the Green Knight's head off. So there you go. You're not going to get back from that one until the Green Knight, his lifeless body, stands up, picks his head up, and he walks out of the room, not before turning to Sir Gawain and saying, One year hence so it's a brilliant setup for a movie, and it's so tense because everyone's wondering what's going to happen to Sir Gawain when the end of this year is up. And he's got a whole year to think about what he's done and what he's got coming to him. And the way that the whole movie goes is just it's so well done. Uh, it's so enigmatic, and most of it is just taken right out of the original story. So, again, this is just a classic piece of literature that is Still so full of mystery and, and full of, uh, you know, lessons to be learned in our modern lives. So The Green Knight, that was the best thing I watched this month. I urge you to check it out. It's actually not streaming anywhere right now. Uh, so I found a copy of it actually at my library at the Columbus Library. I just rented it on Blu-ray. Uh, but, yeah, check it out. If you see The Green Knight streaming anywhere, uh, give it a watch. because I do not think you will be disappointed Whatsoever. That's the best thing I watched this month. All right, before I send you out the door, I always like to give you some recommendations streaming on Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max. I'm trying to help you build a better queue, my friend. It's one of my goals in life here at the Stream Police. I'll give you something that's light and something that's dark in most cases, if I can find something to fit both that's uh, good enough for me to recommend. Uh, But let's go. Let's start on Netflix. Something light for you. How about Watchmen? This is not exactly a light movie, but, you know, it's superhero fare. They are wearing tights. Um, And a lot of people didn't even really get into Watchmen necessarily until the HBO miniseries that came out a few years ago. And I came on this show and told you I thought the HBO Watchmen was one of the best things I've ever seen on TV. Um, No hyperbole. And this movie version of Watchmen, the, everyone always thought the book was unfilmable, but Zack Snyder does his career's best work here by a mile and brings it to screen in a, an admirable way. I think I'm a big lover of the book. It's one of my favorite books, and I thought the movie was great. I remember seeing it in theaters and really thinking he did a very nice job, and I think it has only gotten better every time I've watched it. So it's a cool movie. Great opening as well. Really good uh, opening titles. The Watchmen streaming now on Netflix. Something dark for you How about Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, which came out a few years ago. I actually named it as the best movie of the year in which it came out. I'm trying to think if that was 2018, 2019. Uh, But right here on the stream, police, when I did my best of the year that year, I said Phantom Thread was the best movie of the entire year. And I stand by it. I still think it is a a masterpiece. I think it's a, a great character study. And uh, you've got Daniel Day-Lewis maybe doing the best work of his entire career, which is really saying something. I'll take this, uh, his work in this. I think I'll take it over uh, There Will Be Blood. and I'll certainly take it over Lincoln and so many gangs in New York, so many of the other ones as well. I just think he is so understated and natural here. I've never seen him more natural than in Phantom Thread, And it's a very good story, too. It keeps you gripped. Uh, On Prime Video now, let's talk about something light. 1995's Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood, one of the longest titles ever. You can just call it Don't Be a Menace. Um, But this is, you know, in honor of Black History Month, I wanted to put this one on here because it's really a quintessential black comedy. Uh, It kind of takes all of the, you know, all, all of those South Central Los Angeles gangster movies that came out in the wake of, um, boys in the hood and it lampoons them. And it makes those movies funny, which is like crazy because you think about those movies and they're all so serious and so heavy, but don't be a menace to South central while drinking your juice in the hood. Um, Makes it funny and makes the heavy handedness kind of of those films, something that you can smile about. And this is from the Wayans brothers, Keenan Ivory Wayans directing it. And uh, this is like before they did scary movie. This was a few years before that they, they, Instead of making fun of horror movies, they were making fun of all of these, um, you know, essential pieces of modern black cinema, but really doing it in a loving and funny way. So Don't Be A Menace to streaming now on Prime Video. Check it out if you never watched it, because I think you'll really like it, especially if you've seen any of those other ones. Um, You'll you'll catch all the references and you'll really like it. Uh, Also on Prime Video, I'm going to give you another one that's starring Marlon Wayans in a very different role from the year 2000 Requiem for a Dream. Uh, one of the essential indie dramas of the 2000s. And uh, this is really about as tough to watch as movies get. You want to talk about something that goes into addiction. I think Requiem for a Dream might do it even harder than Euphoria does. Uh, And there's just no light, no joy to be found whatsoever in this movie. But there's a lot of very good acting here, and a lot of surprisingly good acting, especially... Uh, From Marlon Wayans. He really shocked a lot of people, I think, here. Jennifer Conley. Phenomenal in it, as you would expect. So that's streaming now on Prime Video. If you missed Requiem for a Dream for all these years, watch it. It's also got one of the best scores of uh, recent Hollywood history. Let's go to Hulu now. If you got a Hulu subscription, I'm going to give you uh, actually just two dramas this time. Nothing light for you. They didn't have any really good comedies, so I'm just going to give you two really good dramas. From 1998, Spike Lee's He Got Game. I've said it before on this show. might be my favorite sports movie ever made. Um, It's right up there with my favorite Spike Lee, Joints. And Denzel Washington, criminally underrated for his performance here. Uh, Jim Brown is really good in this. Um, the, The NBA great. Ray Allen comes in and gives his only acting performance of his career, which is just a phenomenal performance. Um, And it's just a really good story about the perils of being a young phenom in a sport and having everybody pulling you in a million different directions, trying to use you for their own gain. But it's also a very good father-son story and a tale of redemption as uh, Jesus Shuttlesworth, this brilliant young basketball player, reconnects, uh, unwillingly, with his dad, who has just spent most of his uh, his well teenage years in prison um, for a, a horrible crime that he committed. So uh, you know it's a it's a a dad trying to redeem himself in front of his son, but also trying to teach him some more valuable lessons in uh, only the way that he can. So that's streaming right now on Hulu. I love it. I, I will never get tired of He Got Game. So anytime it's streaming, I'm going to tell you to watch it. So another thing on Hulu that is dark, but also um, very good is uh, the movie Flea, which right now is nominated for Best International Feature at the Oscars, uh, Best Animated Feature and also Best Documentary Feature. Can you believe that? It's the only movie ever to be nominated for all three of those awards. So it's an animated documentary and it's also foreign. So it's about a guy who is uses an assumed name in the movie. He tells the story of escaping from his homeland and going someplace else and uh, gets deep into the secrets of his past. There's some heartbreaking stuff, really tough stuff. Um, but the animation is really cool, and uh, the story is just one of those things that um, could only come from a documentary. So it's it's really this is really innovative stuff and a really cool way to do a documentary. So it's one that you're going to hear about a little bit on Oscar night, and you might wonder about Flea. Well, it's spelled F-L-E-E, by the way. Not F-L-E-A, but it's called Flea and it's streaming now on Hulu. So check that one out. It's brand new, just out of the oven. And finally on HBO Max, something light for you. I already told you, West Side Story. I'm going to recommend it again. Give it a watch. Steven Spielberg's uh, update on the uh, beloved classic movie musical. It'll make you forget about the old one. And this will be the definitive take on West Side Story. Give it a watch on HBO Max as soon as you have a chance. And something dark for you on HBO Max. I've said it before. I think it might be the finest movie ever made. Chinatown from Roman Polanski. I know he's a piece of shit, but, man, this movie is just... Uh, it just stops me on my tracks every time. I think every part of it is flawless, and uh, so many have tried to replicate it, and nobody's even really come close. Uh, certainly not in the genre of detective neo-noir uh, kind of crime thriller stuff. It's about as good as it gets, but there's so much... Uh, memorable character stuff happening in this movie and it's jack nicholson Faye dunaway Uh, it's 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 stellar it's chinatown man watch it now streaming on hbo max and try not to get chills when that music comes up over the titles at the beginning go ahead just try i dare you all right my friend that's going to do it for another edition of the stream police podcast i've had a lot of fun sitting here and talking to you in my closet check you out uh, again in another month when we celebrate our 100th edition of the show stay tuned for that Uh, until then you can always drop me a line at theclintdavis at gmail.com you can hit Andy up at sedlackjournal at gmail.com and you can also find me on Instagram at mrclintdavis And you can find Andy uh, on Instagram at Andy Sedlak, S-E-D-L-A-K. Again, is how you spell that. Thank you, Andy, and thank you for listening, my friend. I'll talk to you again in a month. Until then, stream on.
2: Huh?